think we're all primed. We've been talking about chimps, chimpanzees and their predilection for tearing off phalluses, I think. <laughs> Due to their quick twitch muscle uh, yeah. strength, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, so, hey, look. We like to cover a wide range of topics. <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs> Just like, yeah. If you want to hear that content, you have to actually be our friend. <laughs> that's, that's at the, the um, that's intimate friend level. Hearing yeah. hundreds of people say, not worth it. That's the, what was it, Visa? It's like priceless. Yeah, <laughs> MasterCard. Yeah. Listening to S- Seattle sucks, $5 a month. <laughs> yep. Hearing about uh, hearing apes. them off the mic, <laughs> <Yeah>. priceless. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city we love. It's me, Colin. I'm here with Greg and Brian. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a, a big week. All kinds of wild things have happened today. There was all kinds of fun Trump and climate change stuff. That was cool. Mm-hmm. But Brian, you found just another fantastic uplifting article about one of the behemoths of industry yeah 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 so the new republic had a sort of massive like accounting up to date of the 737 max disaster over at boeing disaster (laughs) oh uh in that the stock prices have gotten disastrously high (laughs) Uh, (laughs) oh But yeah, uh, we'll definitely link to it because like everybody should read this. But it's called "Crash Course: How Boeing's Managerial Revolution Created the 737 Max Disaster," and it should absolutely be read. But uh, yeah, all right, lay it on us. <laughs> all right, well, this is, uh, this is one of our beats here. We've got you know straight from Brian Platt, uh, yeah, let's aerospace aerospace machinist. Um, <laughs> and uh, or uh excuse me ex aerospace machinist yeah. now training the next generation of ex aerospace machinists <laughs> <laughs> you got it you got it so let's start right here on page one of 25 no, gonna... <laughs> this is a long one we're gonna, we're gonna have to do a little skipping through but um yeah so basically to get everybody up to speed right um boeing designed the 737 max they wanted to throw a new engine on it uh, to compete with the Airbus A320. Uh, and so doing, they threw off the weight balance of the plane, which then fucked up all their uh, uh, you know, flight uh, technology for like correcting the altitude of the plane and whatnot. Autopilot shit. Yeah, autopilot shit. And uh, they fixed it by creating this system called the MCAS system that would uh, help the plane so that when the plane's taking off and it makes the nose pitch upwards, the weight distribution causes the nose to pitch upwards, the MCAS system would pitch it back downwards again, uh, which it turns out doesn't really work, but it but does wh- crash planes nicely. <laughs> you know, just the way you describe that makes me think, what? Why? Um, it, the answer Is the answer to... The plane is being off balance is now is really add a whole new system just to compensate for that or is it just like fix that in some way or like oh well fixing it in some way would cost money Greg yeah. so you don't but yeah um, you know here's sort of a nice little summariz- summarization of the problem that you get early on in the article where 
They write, here, a generation after Boeing's initial lurch into financialization was the entirely predictable outcome of the Byzantine process by which investment capital becomes completely abstracted from basic protocols of production and oversight. A flight correction system that was essentially jerry-built to crash a plane. Quote, if you're looking for an example of late-stage capitalism or whatever you want to call it, said longtime aerospace consultant Richard Oblafia, sure. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> so, what we actually have is a story which the author, I think, very convincingly argues, actually just parallels what happened at like AIG, parallels uh-huh. what happened at you know uh, GM and a million other companies that had these sort of disastrous you know uh, plane collapses crashes. in the last twenty years. Yeah, oh, except for wait. this one's a plane with a bunch of people on it. Right, right. None of which were Boeing execs, though. So. No, and uh, as the article problematically points out, that between uh, the two air crashes, Boeing stock actually went up. So, uh, as far as we can tell, the market no works. No problem. Market works. <laughs> well, uh, as I'm sure, like is part of the text of this, the the point of the market is to make rich people richer. Richer, so right? It does work. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so problem solved, really. I guess case closed. I'm so done. Like, uh, market works and uh, massive stock buybacks at Boeing going great. No big deal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So this story sort of begins in the early 90s when Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas. And they essentially brought on the management team from McDonnell Douglas, which was a failing company. Uh, to go ahead and run Boeing, <laughs> which was the company that was succeeding well enough to purchase it. Cool. So that sounds uh, what could go yeah, wrong, right? Sounds great. And these were all acolytes of Jack Welch at GE who came in, and Jack Welch was famous for one thing, which was hiring on, like, say, a team of engineers to resolve an issue. Which he referred to this as the Hollywood model. So this is right up your alley, Greg. <laughs> He would hire on a team of engineers to resolve an issue. When they got it mostly solved, he would just fire them all. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, you know, we brought him in for what we needed him for. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> why, why keep them on? They cost money. <laughs> and so they brought these guys over from uh, uh, McDonnell Douglas to run Boeing. And their first sort of response to uh, how Boeing was run is like, why do we have so many engineers? Why are we dumping money in research and development? Make somebody else do that. <laughs> like, this company is for buying back stock. Like, that's our function. Um, so that's where the problem begins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we should shout out um, that this is, you know, when we, uh, one of the first times we talked about this, or maybe not, but, you know, we've talked about, uh, this has been Mudidi's take um, from the beginning, pretty much. Uh, it's been highlighting the way that financialization has affected this at Boeing. Yeah. Well, basically, money that they had saved by dumping engineering departments and stuff all got just plowed right back into stock buyback. So at one point, you know, in the mid-2000s, they were dropping, you know, $10 billion a year on stock buybacks, right? So well, in 2009, when, you know, uh, the you know, economy was collapsing, Boeing, I think, spent fifteen billion. They have the number, and you have to dig it out. Like fifteen billion in stock buybacks, right? That's amazing. So, you know, uh, just permanently, you know, lining their own pockets. Uh, and you know, like Jim McNerney. Should we? Do we need to explain like what the function of a stock buyback yeah, is? Probably a good thing to. So just... basically, like 
in this idiotic system that we have, um, companies issue stock to raise money when they want to actually pay for things like expanding production or uh, doing research and development, right? Um, that they're not... It's a way to invest in the future rather than taking out a loan. You get other people to buy into your company with you, blah, blah, blah. When you have so much fucking money lying around that um, you don't need to sell any more stock to make that money, uh, and you don't want to put it into anything to improve the quality of your business, what you can do is buy back the stock. So the company essentially goes on the stock market and buys shares from people who own it as the company which means they return to the company which means that stock then ceases to exist essentially uh shrinking the amount of stock that's out there which means everyone who didn't sell their stock back to the company such as like the executives and anyone else uh, sees their share in the company, their percentage share that they own of the company go up, which means their stock price goes up. So it's really just a way. So if you think about that loop, then you're really, it's just paying out to the capital class that happens to own that company. Largely, that's driven by the fact that these executives have huge, like, a huge part, as we know, like, of executive pay at the top corporate level is in uh stock basically they're just handing money to themselves yeah and the way it functions too is like yeah as you're saying like the majority of ceo income is through stock right yeah. stock options and so what they figured out was you know in the old days where you might just say like uh i got the board to agree to give me as ceo and themselves an enormous yearly raise right where yeah. we're just going to give ourselves a 200 percent yearly raise yeah right um where that became bad because people could see it and they might get mad at it. Yeah. Uh, they then just proceeded to do the exact same thing through stock buybacks, which had a buybacks, which had a additional D- bonus, yeah. in that the tax rate, the capital gains tax rate, was right. much it's lower than lower. the income yeah. tax rate. Which is yeah, yeah, I mean because this is that's capitalism. Capitalism's yeah. at the top. All everything in a, in our society prioritizes the needs of capital. Yeah. Hence, capital gains taxes are low. The other thing about this mm. funny little loop they do here is the effect is the stock price goes up which in corporate america is the the one and mm-hmm. only metric of success in itself mm. anyway so they're doing that so they get to say uh this stock has shot up this quarter and they get to divorce that from the fact that they just pumped money to them yeah. into it to do that so it's it's just a it's just a trick that happens to enrich them but they get to say look we're doing great the stock price is going up and so they've been able to say that for now decades and say like look stock stock price is going mm-hmm. up so we're doing great we're doing great we're doing great well all along we think of stock market as a reflection of the economy as a whole which is we know is bullshit but also and it's becoming increasingly clear it's totally not related to the yeah. actual value of a company because yeah, the health of the industry no because look like, that, yeah. like they've been able to keep their stock price pumping up but all the while they were do to do that they were clearly we know gutting the company yeah to make it essentially worthless and this is what you know mudidi said in the stranger was like they basically sold off all their assets and essentially are worth nothing mm-hmm. and now 
because of that and all this other stuff, you know, they crashed these planes. So yeah, they're really, I, really worth nothing. Yeah, and it's always that thing of uh, you know, uh, like Enron stock was soaring until one day it wasn't, right? Yeah, and you yeah, know, Worldcom and you know, AIG, whatever. And you know, and that's sort of the like parallel they're drawing here of like. You know, Boeing's running the exact same way. It's just instead of uh, losing everybody's pension, they're just like fucking killing everybody. Homes. They're building, yeah, they're just building a giant coffin and then crashing it into the ground. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. And so, so, you know, one of the things they talk about is this cultural transformation that comes with the financialization of Boeing in the 90s. And they have this sort of interesting paragraph here, right? So uh, uh, this person, Stone Cipher, whose first name I can't remember, and we're not going to find it. Who cares? Harry, apparently. But anyways, uh, Stone Cipher was the first of these like McDonnell Douglas CEOs to take over at Boeing. And so he writes, uh, Stone Cipher's other big cultural transformation was focused on maligning and marginalizing engineers as a class and airplanes as a business. Quote, you can make a lot of money going out of business was something he liked to say. Uh, Jack Welch have, yeah, Jack Welch have been famous for transferring upper managers from, say, G's locomotives division one year over to plastics the next and to jet engines after that. Stone Cipher wanted Boeing's upper management to view planes with that same cold detachment. To not, as then chief financial officer Debbie Hopkins explained in a 2000 Bloomberg interview, get overly focused on the box, i.e. the airplane. And so... You know, Stone Cypher's sort of managerial tactic was, you guys care too much about the plane. We don't care about the plane. Our job is to essentially enrich the stockholders, right? And, and basically ourselves, right? And, you know, giving too much of a shit about what we're actually making, that's the problem, right? You know, that's what causes you to get precious and building things and stuff like that. These, so, these, because, this, these are the real wages of the Reagan revolution, because what we're talking yeah. about here, this is this huge change that came in the 80s with uh jack you know jack welch and carl eichen and this idea of um the activist shareholder shareholder rights and power and that came in developed this idea uh that the most important thing the first duty of any publicly traded company is to enrich the stockholder and it became practice and Eventually, it, it especially in the '90s became essentially encoded in law, mm-hmm. um, and so they can they can skate on that, and corporations do it all the time. What, whatever malfeasance or whatever, they're like, well, we we were just you know trying to enrich the stockholder. Yeah, and so apparently when Stone Cipher came in, he basically pushed this idea of, you know, Boeing is a company that has a lot of money, but it's not in the airplanes. And he started to push this. Uh, sort of what they jokingly refer to as the cult of Rona or the idea of like, we need to get return on net assets. Mm. And sort of as the writer says, you know, what this actually meant in practice, you know, uh, in reality, all you had to do to make Rona go up instantaneously, no matter what, was to sell off your assets indiscriminately and outsource whatever functions they used to serve to other strategic points along the quote supply chain. Um, so yeah, so basically what he was doing was just going in and just liquidating like whole departments, you know, uh, outsourcing everything they could that could be outsourced and essentially giving up on, you know, any sort of quality control or anything like that, right? Uh, you know, in the, you know, in the search of like quick money I'm, and quick returns. I'm sure they'd phrase it differently cuz I think the yeah. the whole Boeing sort of 
rebuttal to these criticisms for decades has been, well, no, actually, what we do is the quality control, Mm -hmm. you know? But, of course, like, we'll see, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so he gives this sort of uh, first, like, major case study of this sort of managerial uh, practice, right, which was the creation of the 787, which anybody who lived uh, in Seattle 10 years ago remembers as, like, the great boondoggle. The boondoggle of all, like, boondoggles, right? Like, years late, billions over budget. Like, uh, I remember there was a guy at Boeing who told me this story about how the first time they, like, wheeled a 787 out to show off to, like, investors and to show off to potential purchasers, uh, the entire plane was completely empty and hollow inside. And when they wheeled it out of the uh, paint garage that was in, it started to blow down the runway at Everett because it gets, like, wind off the water right there. <laughs> it started to blow down the runway, so they had to push it back in real fast. And they were desperately, like, just trying to throw anything into the plane to, like, weigh it down <laughs> so they could, like, roll it out there and pretend so like it was just, a real plane. Like, take off in a gust of wind that came yeah. at it from the nose, you It know? was basically, like, legitimately, <laughs> I don't know if you ever remember that movie from the 80s, Gung ho where they're like building the uh cars at some like michigan plant and it's like a japanese auto company that owns it yeah and they see him the japanese auto company like he goes up to the one car and the guy's like shining the window and he like looks at it and he like puts his hand through because it's like no glass <laughs> they like open the hood and there's just, like a guy in the ho- like in the engine compartment but it was like literally that like, like, but but with a like multi you know a, a half of you know 100 or 500 billion dollar plane that they just like filled full of any junk they could so it would just blow off oh god <laughs> um so yeah so you know hijinks i think is what we can all say just fun fun hijinks but um does he, does he talk about that project and why it yeah. was so fucked up. Oh, we're going to get there right now. All so right. the previous project to this was the 777, which Boeing had famously like micromanaged every aspect of. And it was also famously the only plane they ever built that the very first one they created was actually airworthy. Like it actually all came together and because they had this hyper focus on making sure every component would fit together and that the whole assembly would come together at once. <laughs> you say that so skeptically, like that's yeah. a weird concept. Yeah, exactly. Like why would you want to do that, right? <laughs> and so apparently- and, and at that time, I mean, no. this is easier to do, right? Because it, no. it's most of those components are being built at their facilities here. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I mean, and honestly, that's the kind of thing that should be easier to do even now, although Boeing's found that it's gotten more difficult for them over the years ago. But so this ends up being sort of part of the problem, right? So uh, basically, uh, so at the point of the 787, a guy named uh, Jim McNerney had taken over as CEO, who was Stone Cipher's like apostle or whatever, had taken over as CEO. He was a giant piece of shit, but that's okay. But anyway, so he had uh, put down an ultimatum for building a new plane, for building a 787. So his ultimatum was that they had to develop the plane for less than 40% of what the 777 had cost to develop 13 years earlier and build each plane out of the gate for less than 60% of the 777's unit cost in 2003. Um and basically, he promised that they'd be able to do this because uh, they, you know, he promised the board that they would require subcran- uh, subcontractors to foot the majority of these costs. Uh, so somebody complaining about this like production process says, in the old days, you would go to the board and ask for X amount of money, and they'd counter with Y amount of money, and then you'd settle on a number, and that's what you'd use to develop the plane. These days, you go to go to the board, and they say... 
here's the budget for this airplane, and we'll be taking this piece of it right off the top, and you get what's left. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> so basically he came in, and and this is something we can get into a little bit here in a second, but just fantastically out of his own brain was like, oh, yeah, we'll build a new plane, but this time we're going to build it for less than half the cost of the previous plane. What is he basing that number off of? Management. Absolutely nothing. Just yeah. as fucking, you know, like I built a vision board and it says that we're going to hit this mark. He probably had incentives, bonus incentives. Well, he probably, <laughs> I mean, that's that's just, that's leadership, right? Yeah. That's just going in and, and you know, making, knocking down doors, uh, <laughs> manifesting your reality. I yeah. Mean, that, that is what management is. I mean, it is arbitrary nonsense. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of funny, like, at uh, my former shop, which is, uh, let's just say, having some tough times, this was a thing that came up all the time, you know? Uh, I remember they would do stuff like, uh, you know, force out all the older machinists because they didn't want to pay them what they are getting paid, and hire in, like, 19-year-olds, which, of course, would lead to, like, you know production disasters along Lots the line of workers comp claims yeah <laughs> yeah but uh the big one too is you know lost scrap parts which is just parts that are no good right and i remember i go into these meetings where they'd be like well why are they all these you know why are we having all this you know scrap parts or be like well we have guys who don't know what they're doing they don't know how to like inspect a part they don't know how to fix things afterwards because you got rid of all the skilled guys and it's like, you know, we there's too many of them for us to, like, train or watch. Like, so it, it just, it, this is happening. And I remember, because, you know, we had hired all these guys who had MBAs but had no experience in, you know, actually building anything. Oh, God. And they would look you in the face and they'd be like, oh, well, why would there be scrap parts? And you know, I tried to explain to them. They'd be like, doesn't the machine do all the work? <laughs> and, like, that they would just say that. It was like talking to a stone wall because they didn't even know what you did down there. They just knew you should be doing it for a lot less money. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? And so we would go from having, you know, we're building parts that are going on planes, and we'd have, like, a 40-part order. Then the past to have, like, one scrap part of that order would be rare. We'd scrap the entire fucking order because nobody had ever looked at one of them or inspected it, right? <laughs> and so, you know, each part's probably three grand a piece, and we'd scrap 40 of them in a row, right? Uh, you know, we'd have guys running $3 million machines who had just taken the job after leaving Taco Bell, right? Like they come from Taco Bell to running a $3 million machine. And of course, you know, because nobody told them what to do and because they're like complicated, they'd fucking crash them. And it's like, okay, um, you paid that guy from Taco Bell, uh, $14 an hour to come work here and you saved the $30 an hour you're paying a more skilled operator, cool that's you know whatever amount per year what 35 40,000 a year maybe at most and it's like uh he just crashed a three million dollar machine that's going to cost you about half a million dollars to get up and running again you know but again they would just look at you and be like but why did the machine crash and you try and explain it and they'd be like but they're not supposed i mean i literally had the conversation with the guy look me down the guy says but they're not supposed to crash and i was like well shit <laughs> You got me there. Yeah. <laughs> like, why have car insurance, right? Cars aren't yeah. supposed to crash. Like, you know, fuck, hell, damn, airtight. <laughs> got me, right? But, uh, oh, but this is like the logic that like it runs all these, yeah. Yeah. you know, industries. They're doing extremely complicated things. You said it right there. It's, yeah. uh, this is what they teach in yeah. business school. All of which should be bulldozed mm -hmm. to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, because their whole thing is like just never touch t- trust a a a business school graduate. Yeah, in any capacity. Yeah. Never speak to one actually. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, and their whole logic would be like, oh, you have ten guys working in an area. Well, we'd make more money if we just had five guys working in that area, and you could spend all day trying to explain like. No, these people are actually like, doing things. You can't just like get rid. Like five people can't do the work, and they just be like, "Just make it work. Just make it work. Just make it work. It's fine. Just do it." You know, and they do it because they have like active. I mean, here it's a lot of because they in- in- interview a lot of engineers. It's a lot of "woe is me" for Spia and the engineers. But like these people do just have contempt for workers generally. Oh yeah, like which they would show over and over again. And yeah, I mean, it's like vision board shit though of like. Well, if we just believe in it, guys, and we work hmm. hard enough, it'll get done. It's like, no, like uh, doing a particular operation actually takes a set amount of time. Like time, <laughs> you know, that time adds up. You know, like uh, people physically can't do. Like I can't be into. I yeah. I had a manager one time who came out on the floor, and I was working on one machine, and the pallet was coming down on another machine to be unloaded. And he looks at me and he's like, "Oh, why aren't you unloading that pallet over there?" And I looked at him. I was like because I'm here. And he just stared at me like I was the crazy one. <laughs> I was like, I I, I, I oh, can only exist in one location of physical space at any particular moment. <laughs> God, I just, oh, for now. <laughs> for now, exactly. He's like, we're working on it. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if all these layoffs at your company are just like an elaborate plan to get rid of you, Brian. Oh, probably. <laughs> but uh, let's let's just say that uh, when I switched departments uh, from uh, where I was working on the floor to going into training, I was not missed by the managerial staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. I can believe that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, so the same thing was happening with the seven eighty seven, where they literally were just going to vision board it and be like, you know. I dreamt on it. I believed in it. <laughs> I read the secret. It's definitely going to work. And the end product was that the 787 was an enormous fucking disaster. Like nothing would fit together as far as the actual framing of the plane. Um, when it finally, you know, when <laughs> the first four models they couldn't even get like up in the air were completely fucking, you know, just trash, right? They couldn't even get them off the ground. Um, it ended up being uh, three years late, and Boeing has been kind of a little bit tight on this for obvious reasons. But the general estimate is something to, you know, along the lines of thirty to fifty billion dollars over budget. Mm. So, you know. A massive like boondoggle compared to previous projects they'd had. I mean, clearly, like, I mean, not even you know close the most expensive plane they've ever developed, uh, which is curious since they began it with this cost cutting dream. <laughs> well, the, the cost cutting <laughs> thing, it comes from a real like concrete place in this whole way of looking, this sort of management uh, view of the world you know, motivated by sort of a detached capital class and then reinforced by business schools. But the idea basically is there must be enormous waste in this system. Because, look, hey, there for one, there are mm-hmm. labor unions exist. They've mm-hmm. been asking for things for decades. Um, I walk down on the shop floor and I see people, you know, not only doing one thing and not i don't not everyone i look at is running yeah yeah and like sweating their brow so thus 
what what do you do from the top you can't micromanage and fix all these you can't like do seminars and like motivate people no you just do what we believe in america it, mm-hmm. you just turn off the spigot you don't give mm-hmm. anyone any choice you go this is what it is going to be deal with it and your assumption as management is well <laughs> the system will have to find its own waste and fucking deal with it and get yeah. rid of it and then we will have the same product come out in the end, but without all the bullshit waste. Forty uh, percent in in this yeah. uh, supposed case here. Well, in this case, sixty uh, percent was what they thought the waste was going to be, which is, I mean, fucking unfathomable. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, that's I mean, it's madness. Yeah, well, you got to figure they, you got to figure they expect that their that's number is going to go over budget. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, yeah. Unless unless it it's some terrible terribly run like shithole outfit that doesn't make any sense and isn't producing a good product there's not going to be 50 60 percent of waste in that system uh and it's insane to think that you know that mm. would have been the case at boeing yeah and i mean and certainly if it hasn't become abundantly clear yet all these you know management types of mbas and stuff are extraordinarily stupid oh yeah people, dumbest which, people alive yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely um <laughs> which is key and critical to the story but yeah i mean the thing about like people running around is like such a critical thing because like at my company that was you know part of the problem was you know they would walk out on the floor and they'd see guys who are just like sitting at the machine maybe like casually checking apart or whatever and they'd be like well they're not like moving quickly or anything like that and since i don't see like kinetic movement they must be they're just loafing <laughs> yeah they're not doing yeah. anything which is fucked and up so- in two ways first of all having that disconnect not knowing what actual work looks like Mm -hmm. you know which and almost like you have no idea what your company does or or what any what work is real funny coming from someone in management who works in an office and knows Mm -hmm. they fuck off most of the day oh yeah literally doing nothing which is not what happens on like a shop floor um but not knowing, not know, I being able to identify, and this is something I just have no understanding of, not being able to identify, because you see it at any job, right? Mm. Someone who just can't like see that someone is working and that they're diligently working, but thinking they're loafing. The other part of it that is all, maybe more disturbing mm-hmm. is you got to figure what do they imagine work should look like, and what it oh, is yeah. is literally everyone every minute of the day is like their heart racing scurrying through tasks trying to do as many things as possible at once 100% of the time and oh, that yeah. that they are on the clock otherwise it's time theft it's well, an amazon warehouse yeah, yeah, exa- yeah exactly now they've yeah they've figured out how to do that at amazon and it takes in like uh micromanagement by artificial intelligence yeah well their problem with like uh gone with the winds reimagining of the south is that the slaves aren't working hard enough like yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. they watch as an hr film about how to like they need to motivate those workers yeah and i mean you know in i remember because i used to at the times as a lead on the floor you said to go to these meetings about this and they'd be like so in my area we had these you know six like machines that are like three million dollars a piece right running very expensive stuff on it and they'd be like you need to cut the workforce in half over there. And I'd be like, well, we can't do that because then, you know, we're going to end up with machine crash. We end up with scrap parts. And like, that was when I got the whole like, well, they're not supposed to be scrap parts. There won't, there won't be scrap parts. So I was like, well, there will. Like, there won't be. I was like, okay. So they cut it in half. And of course, the things I said would happen all happened. 
And their response to that was like, well, why aren't people checking their parts anymore? It's like, because nobody has any fucking time. What do you think people are doing when you like, you're like, oh, you know, oh, I just see them standing around. It's like, what do you think they're doing? They're actually like, inspecting stuff, like, but they can't anymore. You you made sure of that. Like now, now nothing gets checked, right? You know, which by the way, people should think about this. The planes you're flying on, the cars you're driving, probably extremely minimal inspection happening on that because people just don't have the time anymore. Yeah. All that shit got just jettisoned. <laughs> so uh cool, you know. So basically um, what you're saying is I'm just trying to like understand this picture. So you're talking about uh uh some kind of massive CNC machine, right? Of some yeah, yeah. kind. House that, size CNC machine. <laughs> that, that is machining a part and the idea being you need to look at that first part that comes yeah. off after you program it, make sure it's not fucked up and yeah. then the second and third one and then several down the line but instead you have no uh, time so you're just like i programmed it the machine's running yeah. let it crank out 500 of them and if we'll it wasn't it right goes. that first time then it was not going to be right on this well and even like things That's happen that will, yeah and things that will happen that like you know the fifth part in the order might fall out of print right, right and yeah. now all the ones after that are out of print right. too so you have to keep checking keep checking every the other thing parts, too is yeah. if you had a three million dollar piece of machinery you probably want to catch any problems that it has before uh, they become huge problems, right? Yeah, yeah. Because um, say, like, you know, somebody crashes a spindle, right out the gate, that spindle's 200 grand. Now, every second that machine's sitting, you're also losing money, right? So, you know, there's expensive stuff, right? And part of the thing, like, when people are sticking close to the machine, part of what they're doing is they're actually, like, monitoring and, main- monitoring and maintaining the machine, which, of course, that all went out the window, too. So, you It know- sounds like the problem here, Brian, is that those machines were designed to be operated by human beings. <laughs> yeah, I know. and the solution is actually better machines that don't need that. Well, and you know, I like you know, uh, I had one manager who used to tell me that like you know, uh, he was like, "What's the difference between here and McDonald's?" You know, at McDonald's the machine cooks the hamburger and all this kind of stuff. Motherfucker, they and, flip uh, those burgers at McDonald's. And I, no, no, there's a little machine that does it. it like comes down and cooks them. Yeah, but either way, the point being is like, as I try to tell him, I was like. Yeah, I guess the only difference is, is that when you like drop a hamburger on the ground at McDonald's, you lose like two cents, whereas here it's thousands of dollars. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> what's the difference, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, just a little thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's the management mindset, and that's what's going on at Boeing, right, during the 787 project that's creating this just enormous disaster. And then the thing that ends up happening immediately once the planes get up in the air that is now completely lost to time is uh, the cockpits start catching on fire. <laughs> Because uh-huh. their batteries catch on fire. And, yeah, the lithium-ion batteries catch on fire. And there was a little tidbit in here, which, you know, uh, here I'll, here it is right here, actually, that I had not known about from this time because it's all been lost to the, you know, the sands of time. But they're talking about uh, uh, the subcontractors tasked with manufacturing the 787's battery chargers struggled to meet Boeing's specifications and... <laughs> Ended up, ended up burning down an entire ten thousand square foot plant in the worst chemical fire in the history of Arizona. <laughs> so extremely <nice>. cool, <laughs> extremely cool. So things are going well. Worth it. And so the thing is, it's like the author's like you know. So the seven eighty seven was such an enormous like historical disaster for Boeing. Like, how the fuck did Jim McNerney keep his job? Like, how the fuck did, like, anybody keep their job, like, at this point? And they say that it actually happens at a very fortuitous time. So, you know, continuing here. Uh, 
By the time the test fl uh, by the time test flights began to suggest fundamental problems with the plane's architecture, it was 2009, and America was in the depths of uh, the worst recession since the 1930s. Investors, voters, and regulators had all become inured to that sort of thing. So McNerney held on to his job for the long haul, ultimately raking in about $250 million in compensation while at Boeing. In one of his final acts, he restored the company's stock buyback program six months after the FAA lifted the grounding of the 787. Between 2013 and 19, Boeing would spend more than $43 billion buying its own stock, an additional $17 billion on dividends. So, amazing. Basically, their failures ended up just all getting covered by the fact that everybody was looking the other way because uh, the banks were busy, you know, doing the same things Boeing was doing, fundamentally destroying the world economy, like, you know, uh, it, throwing people out on their asses and shit like that. And so Boeing just ended up skating by this giant disaster. Uh, those of us in Washington, it doesn't get mentioned in the article, will remember, though, uh, a few years after that, the state of Washington granted Boeing $9 billion uh, in what can uh, be described as uh, fucking uh, robbery extortion. <laughs> um but yeah. Yeah, it was at fucking gunpoint. Yeah. And basically you know, stole $9 billion from the state of Washington. That's also how they helped to kind of cover some of their losses here, uh, which was in addition to another $3 billion we'd given them, I think, in 2003 as well. So, uh, you know, remember when the state says they don't have any money for anything? <laughs> they seem to have no problem finding that. But uh, so, yeah, so the 787 disaster ends up just going completely you know, by nobody cares as far as they're concerned, giant success, right? Because they all still have their jobs. So it must be a huge and success. Their stock. And yeah. Their stock yeah. I price. mean, they probably took that $9 billion and plowed it right back into stock buybacks well, and gave themselves a they, big bonus. I mean, we know the numbers. They did. I mean, yeah. There's no other way to look at that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, in this person, point, just to show you like how like uh, dark some of this is, uh, they point out two months after the Lion Air crash, which is the 737 Max crash. The board authorized the company to plow yet another $20 billion into buying back its own stock. So, you know, at no point has, like, any amount of disaster befallen them uh, have affected them in any way or give it, made them give a shit in any way about how they run things, right? Um, well, in, in, in a way, from their perspective and from their only priorities that's their way of dealing with that they're going mm. oh this could be a problem for our for our company meaning for our stock price yeah so we better uh buoy that by committing more money to buying back the stock yeah which even just committing that public like that getting out publicly like that right there is going to affect the stock the stock price and prevent it from falling knowing that uh boeing is saying they're about to make the stock price go up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When, uh, so that sort of brings us to the 737 MAX disaster, right? Which is uh, essentially the Airbus A320 gets buys this new engine. So Boeing can't build its own engines because of a monopoly lawsuit that they lost in the 50s. So they have to buy them separately from a third party. And the engine is something like 20% of your plane costs. So it's like not an insignificant thing, right? And Air, the Airbus A320, they bought this new state-of-the-art engine that uh, could provide more power and apparently had like greater fuel savings than what Boeing was using, right? 
So feeling that they have, were losing market share, which they absolutely were, because during uh, the past 20 years, instead of focusing on market share, they're focusing on selling off all their assets and buying back stock. Uh, they decided that they needed to jam this new engine onto their new 737 Max. The problem being the, the engine... They, they had that? designed the plane, this brand new plane, for one engine at the end yeah. of the process. Yeah. They go, we want a different oh one. shit, let's switch the engine. Yeah. yeah, and so the problem being the engine's bigger. So if they put yeah. it on the plane as designed, it's going to be hitting the ground. Well, it sounds like the problem might actually be that when they started the design process, <laughs> the numbers in the budget were so low that they ruled out a better, more modern, more fuel-efficient engine at some point that clearly would have been available as a future possibility to put on the board. And they said, no, that's going to be too expensive. Until, it's, right? Because, like... It's they, actually much stupider than that, Greg. <laughs> So, the reason why the engine is going to hit the ground is because they have uh, this landing gear system that they've been using that had been grandfathered in by the FAA, so they didn't want to redesign it. They could redesign it to lift the plane up a little bit higher and make it taller, but then they would have to have it looked at by the FAA again, and there is some indication that... Uh, Maybe there might be some problems in doing that, right? That they might have had some issues. So they just were like dead set on not running it by the FAA again and just kind of living off this uh, grandfathered status. So this is an okay. old, an old landing, gear, landing system. gear system from earlier planes that yeah. they know if they get another look at in the modern. Yeah, there might be problems. Right, because standards. Just too much red tape. <laughs> this is the because real standards problem. have been, have gotten more stringent yeah. and more information has been learned since these were yeah, first so, introduced. So what they decide to do instead is they build a mounting system for the new engine that essentially holds the engine essentially well Greg you're our our, our boat guy our ship guy what's the forward part of the plane not aft uh well, the forward part of a plane is the nose. Uh, the farther forward would be the forward way to describe Jesus it. Jesus Christ! Never mind, Greg. Yeah, we gave you a time to shine. <laughs> this uh, is I'm what sorry, you do with it. A plane does not have a bow. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Yes. <laughs> but anyways, so they had to essentially hold. If you can kind of imagine the engines like holding out in front of the wing, yeah. so they can buy some space for the like engine to stick up a little bit, right? That it couldn't do if it was underneath it. So in doing that. It actually uh, really critically threw off the balance of the plane, the weight balance of the plane. So this is incredible. <laughs> so they, so first of all, so first, I, I still come back to the fact that they should have looked ahead when they were designing this plane and said, we should probably have a modern engine on here. Second, they're like, well, no, fuck that. Okay, now we need to, but rather than just replacing the fucking landing gear with uh -huh. a more modern landing gear, yeah, yeah. they're like, no, 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 no. Let's literally uh, throw out the first rule of aviation: <laughs> balance. Yeah, and fuck just up the balance. balance. Of the plane. Yeah. So, so, anyways, uh, so you could probably forgive Boeing for the engine thing since that's all third party, and they they maybe don't know this is coming out or whatever. Although I, I don't mean, know that uh, you're a billion dollar corporation, you should probably find that out. But well, their vendors are presumably. Yeah. Yeah, trying to sell them, them this, this shit, yeah. right? I, so, I'm sure they must have passed on... Yeah. If Airbus was able to get it out before yeah. the 787 even went on the market, or yeah. the 737 Max even went on the yeah. market, then, yeah, then it was available. So, you know, it, you know, whatever about the engine. But the thing is, is you get to, like, all the critical, stupid, 
you know, the absolute stupidity of sort of modern management, right, is that fixing the landing gear would have been obviously the cheapest solution. My God. But because it costs money right then, they were like, no, don't do it. It costs money, and it probably would incur some time delay. Yeah. As opposed to doing this thing, which any normal, rational person knew anything about, like, building anything would have been like, that's going to cause an enormous time delay and probably shit tons of money. But they, like, no, I, it's on my vision board. Like, I... Well, the th- I, I, know, I, I I prayed on it. It's, it's the be difference okay. between, like, if you're stupid... Yeah. So, and you're a manager NBA type. That's all you've ever done. You're an idiot. It's the difference between something, someone coming you with to you with an outside problem that's like some the f if we can't do this because well it'll cost money, and someone standing next to you is also a manager. Mm-hmm. You yourself coming up with a solution to that problem. Yeah. One of those things is bad, and one of those things is good, and the. It has nothing to do with reality. Yeah, yeah. It's the fact that your solutions oriented. Is, yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm not just coming up with problems. I'm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so <laughs> they came up with problems to solve problems. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, again, to note, like the, it sounds like f- also from the beginning of the design phase of this plane, they should have been designing new landing gear, and it sounds like they should have known that they should do that because yeah. if they were worried that, literally. They wouldn't get approved mm-hmm. if they they should have just been designing new shit from scratch, basically. Yeah. Well, and so what ends up happening is so they start building models of this plane with the more forward engines and stuff like that, and they actually have a model shop uh, over at Boeing Field downtown where they make these and they put them in wind tunnels. And when they put it in the wind tunnel, what they noticed was because the weight balance is all fucked up. The plane had this uh, crazy tendency for the tail of the plane to pitch downward, you know, like insanely and kick the nose cone way the fuck up and essentially send the plane into a death stall. stall, Love to stall. Yeah. And so, like, you know, whenever they would test it and like test, like, you know, changing elevations, like what if we did this or that? Uh, it continued to have this problem because it was off balance of just pitching the nose straight up, right? And so apparently people in the testing division were like, hey, um, this is, uh, you know, a problem. Like, uh, kind of like a crashing planes kind of problem. And uh, Boeing's response was like, you know, fuck it, don't worry about it. We'll just get those nerds and software to fix it. <laughs> All right, so... Boeing then decides to, you know, somewhat in secret create the MCAS system. Well, presumably, if you have an autopilot system and you turn on the autopilot, you would, it would be, you know, based on a simulated model of that plane mm-hmm. and a lot of data, and it would be taking in data from a lot of sensors, and it would maybe be able to compensate so- for whatever problem that is, but... The pro- but that's not what they that's not the issue here. The issue is when yeah. a pilot is actually flying the plane. Yeah. yeah. It might they Yeah, so the MCAS yeah. system is not an autopilot, no. which is the thing that's dangerous about it. It is essentially a safety device, right? That acts whether the autopilot's on or whether the pilot's flying, it goes ahead and acts, right? So they go ahead and start designing this in secret because they don't want it to get out that the plane has this like horrible flaw in it. And apparently, because they've gotten rid of a ton of their like engineering departments and stuff like that, they go to what is described in the article as a coding sweatshop in India to go ahead and get this like code pounded out for this thing. 
So in the process of getting this code pounded out for it, uh, it starts to take on these like bizarre characteristics that nobody up to this point can quite explain, which is when the nose, when it thinks the nose is pitching up, it'll immediately pitch it back down, but then it has this weird failsafe where every five seconds it tries to pitch it down again and again and again. Well, it's just ad infinitum the data, until right? yeah, ad infinitum just... until you. Uh, and apparently, like even if you correct it, it'll try and pitch it down again until you turn it off. All right. Now the problem being so. <laughs> well, at least a plane doesn't like pitch its nose up in the yeah. air at any time during normal flight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There'll never be a situation where its nose will be more than level. So, yeah. So, well, at least not for long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So this leads to what ended up happening with the first plane crash, uh, where the pilot apparently had, you know, recovered the plane several times uh, prior to it eventually crashing. Uh, they'd had a similar problem in Indonesia, actually, right before the first <laughs> this, the, uh, Indonesian plane crash. A uh, flight had left earlier that day where the pilot basically was fighting the MCAS system the entire way in takeoff, and then eventually was able to figure out how to turn the thing off, and they just flew the thing manually the entire rest of the way. But the thing that fucked them all up was none of the pilots knew the MCAS system was there. So they all thought the plane had some sort of like horrifying like bug in it somewhere. So there's, but they didn't know there's the an automatic existed. like HAL nine thousand that they yeah. don't know about that yeah. can just fucking come on at any minute and pitch the plane into the ground. So this gets to the point of why we don't know this exists, right? And so they don't know it exists because Southwest Airlines, who famously only flies seven thirty seven planes had bought a giant order of these 737 Maxes, but had slipped into their contract an agreement saying that if pilots had to get retrained in order to you know, use the new flight controls, that Boeing would refund them $1 million per plane. Now, keep in mind, these dun, are planes that are selling dun. for like $600 million, right? So in th- the $1 million is actually not a large amount, especially to Boeing. But because of that $1 million refund, Boeing management had issued an edict saying that under no circumstances was this plane to come out with, you know, to require any sort of retraining. Like, they were just not going to pay for the retraining, right? So, you know, they weren't going to suggest it to the FAA. (laughs) They weren't going to, you know, reissue new books with new, like, procedures if the plane starts to pitch down or anything. That kind of, just, I mean, (laughs) that kind of clause in a contract first of all boeing you know should never taken something like that but also it shouldn't even be legal because the yeah. the ob there's just an obvious yeah can, in, conflict of incentive yeah, and yeah. conflict of interest that is created by that that's yeah. like yeah i mean that shouldn't yeah the <laughs> faa should not allow shit like that uh well i think the uh main story here is going to be uh the FAA's complete lack of attention or yeah. concern <laughs> whatsoever for anything that was going on over at Boeing, which is part of the problem. Which, you know, as we d- had talked about in previous episodes, Boeing and other, you know, manufacturers of items and goods are largely left to police themselves. And they usually have an employee on staff whose job is to report to the FAA. Uh, that employee being paid by Boeing or whoever the employer is uh, creates an obvious disincentive for reporting the person who's paying you. Yeah. You know, presumably you will not have your job long if you report this kind of information, right? So, 
So they have this system that's designed to crash the plane. It's put in there without telling anybody about it. And I'm fucking believable. And all that in order to save what amounts to like thirty million dollars on a multi, you know, billion dollar purchase, right? A purchase order. Um so the first plane crashes, and at this point Boeing knows why it crashed, right? So it's not a and apparently engineers at Boeing too who were you privy to the problems were very vocal about the idea, like, no, we're pretty sure we know why this crashed. But Boeing decided to go because it was in the third world. They decided, instead of owning up, how about this? How about racism? (laughs) (laughs) Tried and true. So Boeing, immediately knowing that it wasn't the case, starts telling the story that this is just foreign pilots who are stupid and don't know what they're doing. They don't have MBAs. Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) So they immediately just start slandering all these pilots. Um, which, you know, there was, uh, one guy who writes an aviation blog who, you know, detailed, uh, these, uh, crashes and the sort of cover up of them, like fairly, uh, uh, fairly well, who basically says, I get so mad at Boeing trying to tar this captain when he was actually the most proficient, uh, pilot of all of them, basically talking about the absolutely like insane level of like work these pilots are putting in to try and save these planes and the ethiopian plane we actually know the main pilot was fighting the mcas system and it recovered it a couple of times and had basically he knew that something was going on with the flight controls uh and he had immediately pitched it over to you know pitched control to the co-pilot and was apparently feverishly going through their notebook or essentially the plane manual right to try and figure out how to turn off any electronic controls that might be on there so they get it into manual mode so they're probably and then they crashed it they're 30 like seconds later. double they're hitting every switch that controls the autopilot yeah. that's like no yeah. autopilot off autopilot yeah, yeah. off <laughs> yeah. but this is some other system that's not their autopilot that is some ghost in the fucking yeah. machine that they can't kill yeah and so, so you have to type in and it's not like it doesn't have a because it see it doesn't have there's not like a a panel with like vinyl lettering like on a thing with yep. a switch. This is something you have to what put in a key a key code like a code combination hit enter on your little like uh it, well, apparently key. it's like a fairly elaborate set of maneuvers to turn it off and the thing is you have to know where it is to turn it off as part of the problem. Yeah. And so Boeing had famously uh more than Airbus uh in uh, historically had given a lot of the flight controls to the pilots. Right, and basically said, like, everything can be turned off, uh, even things like uh, stall speed, you know, warning systems, you can turn off. Like, you could turn that off and actually fly this plane to a stall if you wanted to, right? Uh, to try and give, like, the pilots the maximum amount of, like, final say in what could happen. And so, as they talk about here, the pilots, like, dangerously not knowing what the system was or anything like that. Uh, you know, uh, they give this sort of accounting note. The Lion Air pilot was certain that he could turn off whatever was trying to crash his plane, so he temporarily handed over the controls to his co-pilot and scanned the manual. 90 seconds later, everybody was dead. And it's, you know, it's this thing of, like, you know, the pilot even was like, oh, you know, this is a Boeing plane, like, there's definitely some way we can turn this off. It is desperately trying to find in the manual. Uh, of course, Boeing did not include anything about the MCAS system in the manuals because that might require them to have to retrain the pilots and that might cause them to lose like $30 million. So they just didn't do it. (laughs) So, you know, so we start to see like how the tragedy is going to play out. So they blame the pilots 
And then they come back and they say, uh, so here we go. We go this paragraph because they, they blame the pilots and they talk about how uh, for American pilots it would be different, right? So, indeed, most of Boeing's response to the MAX disasters has involved disseminating a kind of misinformation and doubt that makes the crashes look more complex than they really are. In the words of a Boeing vice president, Mike Sennett, to the American Airlines Pilots Union, uh, Boeing simply didn't want to overload the crews with information that's unnecessary by including the MCAS system in the manuals. Uh, Senate also I mean, suggests. <laughs> wow, so, he said this, this after, after the, the crash. crash. After the crash. After the fucking crash. Uh, oh, Senate God, ops. the gall of these fucking people. They should all be executed. Senate also suggested that an MCAS malfunction would never happen to American pilots because of the AOA disagree light, which is so. This was a, a light or a switch essentially that uh, when. The uh, you know avionics equipment is getting like uh, mixed messages about where the nose cone is. Uh, it'll pop this warning light on, and you can hit the switch that'll turn off those systems. Right. So the uh, author then writes uh, that part turned out to be a lie too. The plane needed to be at at least four hundred feet in the air to activate the disagree light. Uh, at which point the pilots already preoccupied with getting the plane in the air. Uh, would only have a few seconds to turn it around. But the idea that some safety feature existed that would have saved American planes perpetuated the fiction that an MCAS crash couldn't have happened in a civilized country, even if its pilots were ill-informed enough to fail to remember the runaway stabilizer checklist. Right? Is this one of the like extras that supposedly this was the extra that they did that the the, like other so this is something that you could this is a little upgrade like power windows that you could buy Uh, it also as they've mentioned here doesn't work so it also would not have saved anybody in those flights but again it was just a little bit of bullshit to essentially throw it off of like well it's this uncivilized you know like savage countries you know what what can we do right yeah and this is always boeing's move right is to blame the pilots um so yeah cool right (laughs) so i would love to say like no one in ever again in history will ever buy a boeing plane because you'd have to be fucking nuts to do that but i just don't trust uh i think the uh, i think the markets actually work and will continue to enrich rich people and so for somehow some reason airlines will eventually buy a boeing plane again well as they mention here you know uh, <laughs> right when they talk about the Lion Air crash, they say, yeah, but what has pitched up nicely, very clever, <laughs> is uh, uh, since its initial nosedive is Boeing's stock price, which as the New Republic went to press was right about where it stood a year ago prior to the crashes. Jesus. So, because Boeing, uh, you know, their immediate response instead of doing anything about anything was actually to engage in further stock buybacks to try mm. and pump their stock back up again. Yeah, of course. They they were they, hey, they all took a hit, man. Yeah. So we have this sort of train of disasters that led inevitably led to these crashes, right? I mean, there was essentially, you know, uh no way that this crash wasn't going to happen. It's shocking there weren't more of them, right? And, you know, who the fuck knows uh when Boeing will get this thing, you know, back up in the air again or why anybody would want to. Uh, so one of the things that happened afterwards is people then started talking 
about all the problems that were happening on multiple lines, uh, Boeing. And one of the big ones that came out was apparently there had been lots of whistleblowers at their South Carolina plant trying to point out the numerous problems that were happening at their 787 line over there that had been happening for years and nobody noticed. So planes apparently showing up with uh, uh, cracked windshields and things like that, also showing up with like bolts that aren't fastened <laughs> and other uh, like hilariously comical uh, problems that come from essentially Boeing's fight with the IAM, the union here, right? They moved to South Carolina to get into non-union territory, and the whole point was to get wages as low as humanly possible for their assembly line workers. And what a shock. Uh, workers aren't paid shit, uh, don't typically do a very good job <laughs> like when they're working. And right? they don't have, you know, people don't, um, people don't understand necessarily that like one of the functions of uh, industrial labor unions in the sort of uh, po- like post-war industrial boom in America was quality control mm-hmm. like training uh and quality and safety were things that the union infrastructure were were watchdogs for they demanded the best training they helped provide it they they demanded that you know you only put out quality work and they were always looking out for safety like this is a thing that unions did they didn't just bargain for higher wages and benefits um they also did what management uh doesn't seem to want to do which is insist on a good product yeah and so you know as all this information is coming out boeing again is leading this sort of massive disinformation campaign and so here we again from the article uh starting almost immediately after the ethiopian crash Daniel Elwell and Sam Graves, respectively the then-acting FAA chief and the ranking Republican on the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee, led a coordinated campaign to blame the, blame the dead pilots for crashing the planes. The crux of their argument was that there was nothing to see here, that correct execution of the uh, runaway stabilizer checklist would have saved all 346 lives. The Wall Street Journal, talk about how the press joined in, in particular honed in in laser-like, uh, uh, laser-like on matters of pilot behavior, even managing to transform the impossibility of manual flight under the conditions of the Ethiopian crash into a story about the FAA's new concern that female pilots might lack the physical strength to try the old-fashioned way, <laughs> or to fly the old-fashioned way, sorry. Uh, which comes to the story of there was a manual crank to fix the stabilizer. If you have a stabilizer that's running away, which is actually not the problem with this crash. Uh, but at speed, at takeoff speed of over 250 miles an hour, you physically can't move it, uh, which somebody did a simulation of it where it took him and another man putting their full body weight, yeah. essentially well, stuff- kicking with their feet to like knock it back one degree. Yeah, this stuff, ha- yeah. This, these are massive planes. They have to be fly by wire. You can't actually. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, control it's, them. it's yeah. impossible. Yeah, and so, but this was the sort of cover-up that was coming, and, you know, so they continue. Would have been a tidy fable about good, uh, about good and greed up there with Oxycontin and the Ford Pinto, uh, one of the simplest ever told about the perils of following orders from investor managers was gradually dissolve, dissolving into incoherence and uncertainty, right? So essentially, like, which has worked, I mean, 
talking to people in the you know industry and stuff like that they're all convinced these are just dumb shit pilots from some foreign country and amazing and we're all being you know held hostage by them or whatever but i mean they're like misinformation campaigns work because who is going to say anything different that has like a larger voice or whatever right uh and so you know, in a, in a sort of summary of what Boeing did, you know, they write, Boeing had manufactured a self-hijacking plane, and in a display of grotesque cowardice, it had chosen to disseminate to pilots a checklist for counteracting the self-destruct mechanism that had killed them even faster. The Seattle Times deemed it a nightmarish outcome for Boeing and the FAA. <laughs> but, well, yeah. that's the thing. Even after the crash, they're saying, use this checklist, right? Yeah. That they know isn't the problem. Yep. Like... And it won't work. Yep. Fucking amazing. So yeah. Like people, this could happen to any plane at any minute that they're flying out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're like, yeah, but but it it's not supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Or what you know, or what they figure is now that this has happened, all the pilots are are paying attention. The pilots' unions are paying attention, so they can say this shit publicly, and all the pilots know. Uh, you just keep have to keep fighting, keep fighting it, or yeah, something, yeah. you know. Yeah, because if you're a pilot, right? You know, the way you see it, right, is like, uh, I, you know, that could be me, like, crashing to the ground right there. So, you know, they're pushing on it, but I mean, you know, Boeing's going to resist, you know, any sort of serious, like, costly change as long as they can. Now, you know, the question is, is uh, you know, they're already facing, I think, sixty different lawsuits about, you know, loss of life in these crashes. Uh. You know, I mean, this is going to cost money. This is going to cost them some money. Now, who's going to pay for it is a real question. You know, will the federal government just step in and buy out all the lawsuits? We'll see, right? Um, but the real sort of end thing here is that Boeing stock is back to where it was, right? They've made a ton of money. And uh, even if Boeing doesn't get the chance to do this again... Like, it's just going to move to the next company in America that's going to do it, right? Like, every company is acting in this way, and it's just all sort of careening to the same fucking result, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's totally dysfunctional. Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever, you know, positive defenses of American, um, commercial industry have ever seemed plausible are made ridiculous in the 21st century uh this 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 shit that you're describing is as fucking backward or more backward and corrupt and stupid than any sort of mm-hmm. criticism of like the late soviet period you know like oh is, sure this is the same kind of this is as stupid and um and dysfunctional as like what the the sort of levels of management of a different kind that led to like chernobyl you know oh yeah yeah and i mean i it's sort of the grand uh irony of chernobyl is that americans can only view that show or can only because of the cold war can only view uh that kind of programming in the context of a battle of good versus evil so they watch it all and just say like Oh, must be awful to live in one of those horrible Soviet countries or whatever where this thing happens because of that. And not anybody could like put together the obvious parallel of like, yeah, this is like why Flint's, you know, drinking water is full of lead. This is why, you know, this is why uh, our banks are all fucking giant disasters that collapse. Yeah, the differences uh. b- before the disaster <laughs> yeah, happened, yeah. it looked like 
Pripyat was actually a really nice place to live, yeah. unlike, unlike almost anywhere in America. Well, me and you, I remember, because we both, I think, finished watching Chernobyl at the same time, and we had this yeah. like long conversation about it, and I said, you know, everybody, I, there was that famous tweet online where somebody was like, oh, uh, Chernobyl, this is what happens when you live under socialism or something. And everybody was like posted under it like, hey, uh, Boeing's like crashing planes into the ground. Like you can't drink water in like most of the Midwest. Like, yeah. like I don't know if now's the time to be like dancing about like capitalism productive yeah. successes. But I remember me and you had the same kind of like uh, reaction to Chernobyl, which for me, the thing that was like shocking about the movie was like seeing the uh, like the state government do anything. Like it was yeah. such a change from anything you would see in the United States that like they like literally mobilized the entire higher resources of the country to deal with like a disaster that was happening there. And for me, like I couldn't help but think about Katrina and be like, wow, like we couldn't do anything. Like, I mean, they, like they just flat did not give a shit and they yeah. just let people yeah. die deployed, and just did not give one fucking shit. We deployed Chris, Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle was airdropped. It was literally like, uh, like the people, uh, like, her, over Hiroshima, right? Like looking up in the sky and seeing the plane and just one parachute falling out, right? Like they were in New Orleans. They thought like maybe they're dropping water, maybe they're dropping whatever. And there's one parachute came out and it's just Chris Kyle <laughs> fucking shooting as he goes down. Like, oh, you know, God. but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's that. But I think that's the really obvious takeaway, I think, um, is that, yeah, we are that. And, and just like, we haven't had, you know, we've had all these natural disasters that we mm -hmm. can't respond to. We've had these uh, crises of vital infrastructure, like the no. fucking lead poisoning of millions of people. And and all kinds of other shit that, uh, you know, haven't had as something as, like, large and galvanizing mm -hmm. in the same way that's like a... You know, I I can't wait till one of our reactors like goes well, haywire. But like, but yeah. th that that's kind of the uh, that is still very obvious, like we've said. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I come back to is like, okay, at the same time, like those things, those two things are equal. Mm -hmm. I think we're our the way we run our society is just as fucked up and dangerous and mm -hmm. corrupt and fucked up. But like, again, I come back to this thing is like they show the reality of like soviet life um i think pretty effectively in that show which is like in in pripyat which is like the middle of fucking nowhere in america in america today and there in uh. you know that area of eastern europe now like you know in the middle some exurban yeah. like like middle of nowhere industrial spot by any kind of like remote mm -hmm. industry like a mine or something it's like the, i mean picture the tar sands okay yeah. which the people working there right mm -hmm. live in trailers for the months out of the year that they can work yeah. there or whatever like that's and and are all on oxycontin and whatever <laughs> like i mean that's that's what america is so even when we're not having the disasters yeah yeah uh, it's just the slow life in the Soviet Union life. for most yeah. people was way better than oh, it sure, is yeah. America. Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, yeah, like, they only I, had like four cars to choose from. Yeah, uh, if they needed one at all, which most of them didn't. You know, yeah. there were buses and trains. You know, well, the thing is, is that we always focus on the consumer choices, but probably aren't understanding uh, 
Well, that, like and that how, tells you how, how hollow that. that yeah, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. Like the consumer choices really are just a substitute for having like any quality of life. Like, yeah. like yeah, it's like you can play a lot of Xbox games, but basically, like that's a substitute for like <laughs> you know having any life outside of just going to work all the fucking time. Um, but yeah, I mean. The funny part is, is sort of like the the comical like sort of uh, parallel between like anti-Soviet propaganda portraying the Soviet Union as really like kind of how America is like this funny way. Like there was this uh, really sweet '80s miniseries called America with a K. Mm-hmm. The prince, the principle of it being, or the you know thing about it being, uh, the Soviet Union takes over the United States. That's episode one. And then it's like 10 years later and you get to see the hellhole that it becomes, 80s America becomes under Soviet rule. And it's so funny because it begins with like, you know, a picture of a deindustrialized town in the Midwest huh. of homeless people just sleeping <laughs> on the streets, you know, like digging in the trash oh, for food. Holy uh, shit, how have I never it, seen this? Sports and entertainment are used to distract the masses from like their declining quality of life, you oh know? Oh my God. How- and it's this horrible hellscape that, I mean, certainly in 80s Reagan America and certainly today, you could never imagine living it. <laughs> like, oh, you know, man. like, God, could we dodge that bullet? <laughs> Holy shit. (laughs) But yeah, uh, you know, people are regimented around like a war economy and stuff like that. You know, uh, everybody loves soldiers, cops everywhere. I mean, who could imagine living like that? (laughs) So yeah, it's pretty cool. America with a K. Check it out on uh, YouTube. I think all the episodes are up on YouTube, guys. (laughs) Holy shit. I can't believe I've never heard of this. Yeah, it rules. I watched watched it on TV as a kid, like a real idiot. Let's blow this one wide open. Yeah, That's I think it has Chris Christopherson in it. So. Ooh, hell yeah! <laughs> like, <laughs> sweet Chapman. <laughs> but yeah, so, so I think that's about as dark as we can get on Boeing. But everybody, like, seriously, it, it's fucking long, but it's worth the read. We'll put up the link. Go, go read the article about Boeing and the New Republic. It's it's worth it. So, and you know, also I'll come back to um, as we've talked about uh, Charles Mudidi's, you know, written a bunch mm-hmm. of the stranger kind of along these same lines um in sort of smaller posts and one thing that we talked about before that he uh, sort of posited is that this is this has a potential if this really crashes boeing you know whether they get bailed out or whatever um that has the potential to have a huge economic effect that it is happening oh, yeah, right yeah. now. It's starting yeah. right now, as we know, like, you know, people in your industry being laid off. That has the potential to have an enormous economic effect regionally. And that's yeah. at a time when, um, you know, uh, the housing market here, and certainly a lot of the country, but here is like ludicrously overvalued. There's mm-hmm. a bubble there. And then there are also signs sort of nationally and globally that we may we may even be in a recession now that we won't the numbers mm. won't be able to tell the story of for till like next quarter or something yeah, yeah. but like and, and this could be part of what brings down the global economy for the second time in our lives it may it may be that other things trigger the global yeah, economy yeah. to collapse first and then that really makes it impossible for Boeing not to just sort of implode yeah. in on itself but e- either way like yeah. 
It's we, not good, man. We're all sort of like a, you know sitting on this like house of cards. The foundation's completely rotten, and we're just waiting to see what what's the card that you flick away that's going to make the whole thing collapse. And I mean, no one wants thing... that. No one invested. It wants it to happen. So they're all the whole stock no. market is invested in the idea of uh, denying that for as long as possible, so they can keep making money. But no. as as more as you look into the Boeing thing and realize, and this no. was Mudidi's point, is that as you look into it and realize how precarious their position is having liquidated yeah. every one of their assets and used all their cash to pay out to their stockholders that they're basically a hollow company yeah. that literally now doesn't have a product yeah. um that what that means is if you take that knowledge and you start looking around and realize that all other american companies are exactly the same way pretty yeah. much then you might start to get fucking scared and sell off all your stock. You yeah, know? and I mean, yeah, and, and Budidi has this, like, you know, yeah, in that point, basically saying that uh, Boeing's particularly exposed, right, because the very thing they could have, like, leveraged to pay off, you know, the cost of this disaster is gone, right, because they sold it all away, and they're literally just left with political leverage at this point. Yeah. So now it just come, all comes down to, like, how much of this can they push off on the state of Washington, how much of this can they push off on the federal government, and honestly, how much can they push off on their supply chain? But the thing is, they've already milked the supply chain so fucking much that it's going to be hard to do that, too. So, you know, it's this, you know, it's hard not to see this being, like, fairly disastrous. You know, I mean, like, and, and particularly for people in the Puget Sound area, uh, you, you know, people in Seattle especially are not aware of how many people in this area essentially exist in Boeing's orbit. And, it, yeah, if they have a serious crash, it's going to... Uh, below this fucking bubble in this region, way the fuck up. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be a mess. Uh, you know, and it's starting for all the psychos. You know, concerned about the homeless now. Like, you know, uh, wait till they see the encampments after after this shit goes. There's gonna through. be more of us than there are of them. Yeah. Well, there you go. Get your guns, guys. <laughs> Maybe you got an island for that. Yeah, they got an island for that. Yeah. They wow. might have to get more than McNeil Island. Then they might have to get a bigger island. The, uh, just all of uh, Vashon. It's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just the whole Kitsap Peninsula becomes yeah. a giant like uh, prison pseudo island. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. Well, yeah, that was a dark, dark tale. Thank you for that one, Brian. <laughs> um, I think with that, we pretty much exhausted our um our conversation for this episode so we have a few patrons to thank um three new patrons well one returning patron Damn. Uh, nice. so august eschback james eisenberg and what's up james and <laughs> ian edwards welcome ian back edwards, thank you did he move back to seattle i don't do think so i think ian's in portland now but still likes Love to get it. the good word yeah, yeah, yeah we appreciate it gotta get in on it. well you know we we chided you guys before you stepped up so prepare for more chiding <laughs> yeah. Us that works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh there's a now a great backlog of uh uh serious informative episodes mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> only uh, half of them have to do with finding shit on sidewalks or trails or rolling in it yeah, or getting we, it in your mouth we hope to improve those but with, soon. yeah with <laughs> the next shit. episode we'll be talking about about that again oh, probably 
great. Yeah, yeah. So soon, if you so if you're a coprophiliac like us, then if you enroll now, uh, then you will have access to the next uh, Seattle Suckers episode when it drops, which we're about to record now. So um, yeah, should we should we tease that a little? What is it? What's gonna be in it? What are we gonna talk about? There's gonna be poop. Oh yeah, yeah. Poop. There's gonna be that's cops. A, that's all you need to know. Poop, cops. Great. Yep. That's got it. That that's half of the content of this show. Poop and cops. All right. Cool. All right. Love Thanks it. for listening.